0: What a powerful time of worship. I am so thankful for you guys, and that is exactly what I want us to do today. I want us to look Jesus right in the face and see who he is. I'm excited to be here to continue on as we are looking at the book of Mark, and we're looking at Jesus as our servant and sacrifice. My name is Ann Jeanette Walshhauser, and I am a part of the teaching team here at um, Women in the Word. And today our lesson is Mark chapter 3, and we are going to look at Jesus revealing his heart to us, because it's when Jesus reveals his heart to us that we're able to see God's heart for us. We can have a relationship with God that is so deep and so rich because God knows us. Because God knows our heart so intimately. And isn't that what we want? I mean, we want to be, I don't know if men feel this way as deeply as we as women do. But we want to be understood. We want to be known. We want to feel like we have that deep heart connection with those people around us. And I think relationships are interesting. Because we can have um, spent a lifetime in the same house with our family growing up and realize when we get out we don't really know them and they don't really know us sometimes. And yet we could sit down and have a cup of coffee with a woman that we have barely met and start talking about something that is deep and meaningful in our heart and we instantly feel connected. We instantly feel like they know us and understand us in a very deep and profound way. I, um... I came across this quote as I was preparing for today, and I thought it was funny. It was. Um, it says, you never really know someone until you've been in a car with them when they're driving. And I thought, it made me laugh. And, and the reason why it made me laugh so much is because it reminded me of my husband, Jeff, and I, when we first got married. We... Um, We met in October, and it was by that Christmas when he went home to see his family, we already knew we were getting married. We already had the day picked out, so two months, and we knew we were going to get married. Um, And it was the following, I I went to go meet his parents in January, and then that May, we got married. So it was a pretty quick deal. We had a lot of um, great heart-to-heart conversations. You know, I totally felt like we were just right in sync with one another. I was just like, God, I can't believe you've created this guy who sees the world just like I do. And, um, and then we realized we didn't know each other so well. And for some reason, it seemed like we had all of these, what we call marriage building moments surrounding the car. Um, whether we were, I was trying to give him directions and he would get lost and he still says that the only two times he's ever been lost was when I gave him directions. I find that hard to believe. But he still says that's true. Um, or, you know, the fact that I would kind of just throw trash in the back of my car. And I thought, this is great. I'm now married and that gets cleaned up. <laughs> and so I, you know, found out that he resented that. Um, but the, the time, with this, the, the thing that really struck me and made me laugh when I heard this quote was um, the first time we ever had a fight. And I remember this, it was May 25th, 1997. The reason why I remember that date is because it is exactly a week to the day when we got married. And we had not ever had a fight. I mean, but we'd been doing all this, oh, this is so wonderful, we really see each other. You know, we hadn't known each other that long honestly. So we, um, Jeff in his desire to lead us financially secure and make wise decisions decided to sell his big truck that he had bought before we were married, or before we met. And he got this old beater Honda hatchback. It was Smurf blue, we said. Um, But it was a standard transmission. So, I didn't know how to drive a standard transmission. So a week to the day before we got married, Jeff took took me out into an old parking lot um, in a little neighborhood behind and decided that he was going to teach me how to drive a standard. It did not go well. Um, We were very heart-to-heart there, a different part of our heart was showing. um, I was very vulnerable in telling him how I felt and let me just say, um, I still cannot drive a standard. We kept the car, but I never once drove it. So today we're going to do the same thing with Jesus, but we're going to look at how we can be vulnerable before him in the same way that we were, Jeff and I were vulnerable even in our disagreement there because we put our heart, I put my heart out there with him completely and totally. And that's what we're going to do when we come face to face with Jesus today, um, Because we're going to see what's important to him. What's a priority to Jesus? And the bottom line is that we are. We are what's important to Jesus. We are the priority for him. He humbled himself to become a baby on our behalf to bridge the gap between us and God the Father. He knows our hearts. Jesus longs for us to see the heart of God. The first verse on your verse sheet today is Psalm 139, 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. He knows our hearts. There is nothing in all of creation that is hidden from him. Even that part of us that we so carefully and meticulously try to hide. We put those masks up on Sunday morning or Thursday morning. Whichever it is that where you come and you've got it all together. God knows our hearts. Even that manipulative and deceitful part that we don't want anybody else to see. Jeremiah 17.9 also on your verse sheet says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, ladies, let me tell you, the answer is Jesus. He can understand our heart, and he longs for us to understand the heart of our Father. Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus came to reach our hearts and to reconcile us to God's heart. Um, Now, for some of us, we hear that statement that God knows our hearts so intimately, and, and it doesn't bother us. Um, there are others when we hear that, that it makes us to start feel uncomfortable. We feel almost invaded. Like, you mean there's not any part that I can hide from him? Because our heart, like I said, is something we try so hard to protect. And then here we are, and Jesus can see it all. And sometimes I think what makes us feel uncomfortable is because we don't really trust the heart of God. And I I wanted to share this story um, of a social worker who came across a little girl in foster care. And this is her story. Let me read it to you. One day, a beautiful but very troubled little girl came through the door of my day nursery. From the very beginning, I was captivated by this little child who had so little and needed so much. I was heartbroken that a four year old could suffer such heartache and pain. She was born in prison with their mom who had used marijuana, crack, and cocaine her entire life. The little girl was nonverbal and had very little self-control, and I knew her progress would be a mighty battle. Whenever somebody approached her, she would become violent for long periods and end up in a fetal position on the floor crying out, and I found myself praying for her day in and day out. As months rolled on, I began to bond with this little girl that nobody wanted. She and I worked hard, taking one step forward and four steps back. Daily, we would sit in a big rocking chair in my office, swaying back and forth, and during our rocking chime, I would sing, Jesus Loves Me. She would always settle down and become very still, and she would be filled with peace as I was praying for her and singing this song. One day, after a very long battle, I held my special girl again to calm her feels in pain, and silence we walked rocked back and forth. Then she looked up at me with tear-filled eyes and spoke for the very first time. Can you sing to me about the man who loves me? Blinking back tears of joy, I knew the battle had been won. See, when it's when we come face to face with God's love for me, that we can finally relax and trust him. We're going to look at, like I said, Jesus' heart in Mark chapter 3. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. And as we go through here, if you want to look on your outline, you can see that I've got four um, points here set apart, that is going to be what Jesus is going to reveal to us about his heart. And so the first one is that Jesus is going to reveal the precedence of humanity in these first six verses of Mark chapter 3. Now in these first six verses, before I read them to you, Jesus is going to do two things. First, he's going to remove the condemnation from a man who had a crippled hand and completely restore him. Second, he's going to challenge the Pharisees on the true purpose of the Sabbath, Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn heart said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus walks into the worship service, into a synagogue. And if you'll remember the first week that we were here studying Mark, Deb talked about that the synagogue is different than the temple. And it basically was an open building that was for traveling rabbis or teachers of the law to be able to share about God's word. It was an open room with seats lining up towards the front, and not unlike this, there was a platform, and that's where the teacher would stand to be able to teach. And also on this platform were what were called seats of honor. And that's where the Pharisees would sit. So it's from their vantage point, it was very easy for them to see Jesus coming in, to see this man with the crippled hand. And the crippled hand is significant for many reasons. One, because during this culture, you would be hard-pressed to find a job for a man that didn't include his hands. So having a deformed hand would mean a hard life. Another reason why it was significant is because the Pharisees really saw that this deformed hand or any deformed hand was a result of a man reaching out to sin and coming back with a punishment of the deformed hand. And then thirdly, it would have been obvious to everyone because part of the culture in the synagogue, when they would praise God, men would lift their hands above their shoulders. So his deformed hand would have been very, very obvious when Jesus came in, he was looking at what the hearts of the Pharisees were because their desire was to catch Jesus, to trip him up, that he would break the law, and in doing so, his following would be stopped. People would stop wanting to hear what Jesus had to say. He would be known as a lawbreaker, but Jesus wants to for each of us to understand what the true purpose of the Sabbath is. And we can see on your verse sheet, um, Exodus 31, verse 13. Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. The Pharisees missed the heart of what God's law was. They knew that this was a commandment. And they had added so much to where the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy became this horrible burden. But the purpose of it was for us to remember that God's in control. That he's the one who created the world, not us. That he's the one who is holy and we are to rest in his provision. It's not so different from Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. We are to rest in God's goodness We are to rest that God is in control and that he brought rest to that deformed man that morning and he comes to bring us rest as well. Now I'm going to read to you another portion out of Matthew. If you want to just write this down, you can turn with me if you like, or you can just write this down on your notes. It's Matthew 12 verses 9 through 12, Matthew 12, 9 through 12, and it's telling the same event just from a different perspective. Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, could Jesus have waited to heal this man until the next day? Of course he could. The man had been deformed for a while. One more day wasn't going to make a difference. But why would he? Could the sheep stay in a pit overnight? Well, of course it could. But it was very clearly stated in the Talmud, which is a collection of books of the law, that the sheep or any animal that was suffering would be given what's called Sabbath relief. They wouldn't be expected to suffer. And so Jesus makes a great point when he says, isn't a man more precious than an animal? Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He came to give rest to this man. He had him stand up boldly in front of everyone. The Pharisees were waiting for him to break the law, but Jesus reveals the precedence of humanity. He reveals the compassion in his heart. God's mercy. Some called Jesus a lawbreaker. One man called him a healer. What do you call Jesus? Do you see his heart here? Do you call him your rest? Your healer? The man walked away forever changed. And when we come face to face with God's heart, and Jesus, the, the precedence of humanity, it changes our lives. Matthew 11, 29 on your verse sheet tells us, this is Jesus speaking, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." Now the second way that Jesus reveals his heart to us is that he reveals the priority of intimacy. Right after this incident, um, after the Pharisees have gone out and begin to plot with their enemies, the Herodians, on how to kill Jesus, Jesus withdrew with his followers. Excuse me. And people came from great distance to see who Jesus was. Just to see what his reputation was. If you look at your map um, that we were given, Galilee, up towards the top of the map, is where all this has taken place. And in, in verses 9 and, um, or in 7 and 8, it tells us that people came from as far down in Judea, all the way up to Galilee, as well as to the top at Tyre and Sidon. They traveled days. In order to see who this Jesus was, to see what Jesus could do for them. They were crowd the crowds were pushing up on Jesus so much with their needs that the disciples had to set or the followers there had to set up a a boat so that Jesus could get away if he needed. These people came to Jesus not to give him their lives, but to see if Jesus could fix. Their lives. What brought you to Jesus? Was it curiosity? Was it a pain in your life that you just needed relief from? The first time that I ever heard the gospel, I was in sixth grade. I had um, gone to church my entire life, but I didn't know anything more than the rote prayers that we would say on Sunday mornings. And my, We were living in Greensboro, North Carolina, and my parents took me out of the public school for a couple of years and put me in a Christian school. And I was, I don't remember the circumstances, but whatever it was, I didn't want to do it in class. And so I told the teacher that I was sick when I really wasn't. I was lying. And so the teacher um, took me into the hallway and I thought, I am busted. She is about to call me out for lying. But what she did was she put her arm around me. She called another teacher who was walking down the hall and they prayed for me. They prayed for my healing, they prayed for me to feel the presence of God, and it freaked me out, because nobody had ever prayed anything personal. I don't even think my name had been like linked in at the same time somebody was talking to God, and I thought, my parents have put me in a cult. What am I going to do? And so I thought, well, I'm going to start listening to chapel that we went to every week. And so I was like all ears next week at chapel. And they started talking about sin and all of us having sin. And I had no problem with that. I had just lied. I mean, that's the whole reason I was listening. And so sin, I got that. But then they told me that because of my sin, I was going to hell. Well, that got my attention. And they said that the only way to keep from going to hell was to get down on your knees and ask Jesus to forgive you. So that night I went home, I locked the bathroom because I didn't want my family to know what I was doing and I got down on my knees next to my bathtub and I asked Jesus to forgive me. And I didn't do this, but my heart literally was like, all right, got that taken care of. And And it was not for four more years that I ever thought about it again. What's amazing to me as we look at these verses here, In 9 and 10, let me read this. Because of the crowd, he told the disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. It amazes me that God continued to heal these. Jesus healed them. He didn't ask what their motivation was. He didn't ask if they were pure in heart. I would have been like, pure in heart, yes, you're healed. Selfish, hit the road. Thank you, God, that you do not dismiss the selfish. Thank you, Jesus, that it's not about our devotion to him. It's about his compassion for us, the precedence of humanity. And then we see as we look at the contrast between that situation and then what happens in 13 and 14. 14. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and they might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These 12 that Jesus calls apart, yes, they are given authority. They are to go out and to preach the good news, But he called them to be with him. They called them to, with their very lives, be with Jesus. The crowds were familiar with Jesus, they'd heard of him, they came to see what he was all about, but the 12 were called out to be with him and to be intimate. Jesus here reveals his heart for humanity, and he knows our immediate need. But he cares about the priority of intimacy. Because it's not, we don't just come to Jesus for what he can do for us. The sustaining power is an ongoing relationship with Jesus. It's being with him, day in and day out, seeking him with all of our heart. The crowd was familiar, the twelve were intimate, which one are you? Is your life set apart to be with him? Or have you simply just come to Jesus to see what he's all about? Maybe he's healed you, but you've never gone past that point. You've never gone further or deeper or more intimately with him than just being healed by him. Jesus tells us that we are to love him with all of our heart. Matthew 22:37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Jesus reveals his heart for humanity, the priority of intimacy, and then next we're going to look at Jesus revealing the power of God. Now the power of God would have been evident to anyone at that time. It, the demons recognized his power and who he was. People traveled for miles because of his reputation. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees recognized that he spoke with authority. The power of God was evident. But the problem was that the teachers of the law were jealous. They didn't like the following that he had. And they accused him in verse 22 of being possessed by Satan. Look with me at verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, for those of you who are curious um, what Beelzebub Beelzebub is, um, I want you to write down this verse. So you can go and look at this later on and see what this reference is. It's in 2 Kings chapter 1 verses 2 through 16. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 2 through 16. Basically, Beelzebub is literally translated Lord of the Flies. And that was a very common name that was given for Satan. So there wasn't any question here about what were they really saying. They were saying, Jesus is possessed. Jesus is doing all of this, driving out demons by the power of Satan. And so Jesus responds in two different ways. First, he tells a story to get his point across. Follow along with me, starting in verse 23. Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. Jesus is basically saying, Think about this. It doesn't make any sense. Satan can't drive out Satan. It would be basically suicide. And then he goes on to make his point even further in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Jesus is saying that Satan is a strong man, that he is powerful. But he's also making the point that Jesus is more powerful. That he can go in to the kingdom to drive out the demons. And the reason he can do that is not because he's possessed by Satan, but because he's possessed by the Holy Spirit, which is more powerful than Satan and can tie Satan up. And we're reminded of that in 1 John 4.4 on your verse sheet. Because the one who is in you, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. See, the teachers of the law were right about one thing. There is an enemy. There is a powerful enemy. That enemy is Satan. And Jesus, none of his power comes from Satan. Jesus is more powerful than Satan. There is a powerful enemy, but the power of the Holy Spirit is even greater. Jesus' second response starts in, in verse 28 through 30. I tell you the truth all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying that he has an evil spirit. Now, these are strong words, and Jesus uses them to get our attention because it's a warning. It's a warning to the teachers of the law there. That they, if you give the Spirit of God, if you say that the Spirit of Jesus comes from Satan, and you're, not, and you're denying who the Spirit of the Holy Spirit is, then you will not be forgiven and be guilty of an eternal sin. For some of you, this may seem like a non-issue. You know that you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. You know that you are washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And through his death and resurrection, you know your eternal destination is heaven. But for some of us, maybe you came to Christ later in your life. Maybe there was a significant point of rebellion and disobedience in your life. And you read this verse and your heart is filled with fear. Because I can't think of anything worse than to be told that there's no escape and that I am beyond forgiveness. Verse 28, it starts with the words, I tell you the truth. This is literally translated, amen. Truly, I say to you, it is only found in the Gospels. It is only uttered by Jesus God tells us the truth and so listen closely to the rest of verse 28. 28. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Blasphemies, anything that's against God. Anything that's derogatory, all the sins of men will be forgiven them. Sometimes I think it's the exception in verse 29 that overshadows the truth of verse 28. So I clearly want all of us to hear the fact that God offers forgiveness for all of our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Christ died in our place in order to bring us to God. So now we must understand the second part of what Jesus said, this warning that he put forth. And we need to understand it within the context Jesus even reminds us of that context in verse 30. I'm telling you this because you said there was an evil spirit within me. Now, when the Pharisees said this, Jesus didn't go, You said it once, you're done. Eternal damnation. Jesus is referring not to an isolated act, but a continual act of obedience, of disobedience, of rebellion of their heart. This attitude of defiant hostility, rejecting God's saving power toward men. God saves us through the spirit-empowered person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of working by the power of Satan, they are denying the Holy Spirit within Jesus. And the very thing that Jesus did to offer salvation Jesus warns them they're becoming dangerously close to an unforgivable sin. That if they continue in this willful unbelief, their heart is going to become hardened to the point beyond repentance and forgiveness. If you're willfully and continually denying the person of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, sent by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you cannot be forgiven. Isn't that essentially what salvation is? Proclaiming Jesus is God, sent by the power of the Holy Spirit, dying on the cross in our place, raised again to prepare a place for us in heaven. That's the gospel. And so when you're denying the Holy Spirit's work in that, you're denying salvation. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, what does that mean for us here today? Number one, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is a non issue for you. Your eternal destination is heaven. If you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Your eternal destination is hell. It's until you recognize you need a savior. You recognize that by the power of the Holy Spirit sent by God, what Jesus Christ did on the cross in dying for your place and washing you clean by his blood, that's what brings you salvation. It's faith and trusting in that that makes your destination heaven. Now these words are a warning. A warning that God takes sin seriously. He is not neutral on the subject. God takes sin so seriously that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then he goes on to say in verses 18 and 19, on, also on your verse sheet Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of Jesus, of God, one and only Son. This is the verdict light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. The Pharisees were in the presence of light, Jesus. And yet they accused him of being possessed by Satan. Have you seen the power of the Holy Spirit in your own life? Do you take sin seriously? Do you recognize what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? God is showing his heart to you through his son Jesus here because he wants us to know that he takes sin seriously. He wants you to know that God is a powerful God. And the Holy Spirit comes from God, equal in power to indwell in Jesus Christ. And it is through him that we are offered salvation. Do you understand the power of God? Do you fear him? Now I'm not talking about being terrified of him. Not being afraid of what he's going to do to us. But fear him in the same way that the Sabbath was set aside. In the same way that Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Reverent awe at the power of the Holy Spirit. In these final verses, we're going to see the fourth way that Jesus reveals his heart to us. And that he reveals the purpose of new life. Starting in verse 31 follow along with me. Then Jesus's mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. He looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. When Jesus is told that his family is looking for him, he turns around and looks at the people in front of him and says, this is my family. Remember last week when Deb talked about how Jesus came to bring a new way? Well, he came to bring this new life Is how we see our family as well. In no way is Jesus saying that his family is not important to him. God's word is very clear, honor your father and mother. God's word is very clear that we are to take care of our families and provide for them. He's not saying to put aside your family. He's saying you have a heart-to-heart connection with those around you because we have everything in common because of Jesus Christ. And his mother and his brothers are going to have to learn to relate to Jesus differently now. It's not just his son. He also is their Messiah. Jesus changes everything. And accepting Christ brings a new identity. If you're finding your identity in anything other than being the daughter of a king, if you're looking for your identity as whether I'm married or single or have a job or have children or live in the neighborhood I want to live in, you're denying this new life that he's given and you're missing the heart of Jesus. Because he came to give you a new identity. Um, Jesus knows our sins. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our brokenness. And it's that brokenness that brings us to the door of God's heart. I told you that when I was in sixth grade was the first time that I heard the gospel. And I didn't think about it for four years later. It wasn't until I was 16 that I understood my brokenness that I understood that the same God who had created every single star in the sky and named them all, the creator of the universe, knew my heart in and out, all the parts that I tried to hide, all the wretchedness, and I was broken by that fact. And I came before him with my brokenness, asking truly for forgiveness, knowing that he loved me and I was forever changed. If you are familiar with Jesus and not intimate with him, Jesus wants you to see his heart and be forever changed. Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus wants to restore our relationship with God. If you are intimate with him, But you're not living day to day seeking Him with all of your heart. You're missing out on that deep connection that we can have with Him. Remember, Jesus loves me. This I know, the Bible tells me so. Jesus wants to revive our connection with God's heart. How are you going to respond today? When you come face to face with Jesus' love for you, how do you respond? My prayer for you is what the last verse on your verse sheet is. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you. In your sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Our once deformed hands. That were completely restored by Jesus. We lift them up to praise his name. Because he loves us so much more than we could ever imagine, and it changes our lives forever. Let me pray. God, thank you that you change our lives. Thank you that you love us, that you reveal yourself to us, and you long for us to have a relationship with our Father. I pray for these women. I pray that your word would change their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.